Welcome to a very special episode of the Josias Podcast. Uh, Potter and I are joined from calling in from Southern Indiana, Pat Smith. Pat, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. How are you two today? I'm doing all right. I'm doing very well. It's it's nice to to hear your voice, having corresponded with you over the web for many years. It, it's great to be here, even if even if only virtually. Yes, yes. Uh, so this week uh, or this episode, we have sort of a. Uh, I, as I said, it's a very special episode. We'll be talking about the Joker, society, Italian opera. It's uh, Seinfeld, something for everyone. So let's start. Uh, <laughs> this this famous aria is from the Italian uh, opera Pagliacci, which, of course, uh, we chose because of the tie-in to the movie The Joker, which we all saw and I think liked to one ex- uh, extent or another. And... Uh, 
I thought it was a great, good tie-in because he's sort of the original Joker. Uh, and uh, I thought it had some, some tie-ins to the movie as well, although it's not used. I haven't. I saw Pagliacci when I was about 15 years old and haven't seen it since, so my memory of it is extremely vague. I, went, I remember actually going to see it in Vienna with um, Peter Cazzarella, who's sort of a Balthazarian. Theologian oh was visiting us at the time, <laughs> and we went to uh, standing room. I hated it. He and his wife loved it. <laughs> I like it. It's kind of it's kind of uh, you have the one guy. Uh, uh, is it Canio? Uh, yeah, Canio is the one with the famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's egged on by the the other the other characters. Kind of got, got a little uh, almost meta in a sense. Uh, so let's let's move on to the Joker though. Uh, what did y'all think of it? I, I thought it, I really enjoyed it. I didn't think it was a perfect movie, but uh, uh, I found it very amusing. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it was it was gripping. I didn't look at my watch <laughs> while I was watching it. So that was a good sign with the movie. It was it was just a, a few days before my doctoral defense. They went to see it to get my mind off of uh, exams and so on, and uh, it worked. It, it took my mind off of it. It was. I mean, it is it is very bleak because it doesn't offer any alternative to the kind of embrace nihilism vision of the Joker himself. Uh, I thought it was good uh, as as a formal achievement um that is i i think it's recreation of sort of a late 70s early right. 80s new york was was really impressive um the story itself i don't know if it was the as as potter says the sort of bleak world without possible escape or whether the, phillips just didn't use his his cast very well it felt sort of strangely inert to me yeah, um, the first I think half of it is very. I mean, it's it, uh, Phoenix has is such a good actor that you, you're. I found myself engaged by it just because he's doing a really good job. But the character is kind of such a loser who's wrapped up so much in his own little world that it really, uh, it, it really kind of. I don't want to say dragged. I wouldn't say dragged, but it wasn't. It wasn't very dynamic for I don't know the first two thirds till he sort of goes off his meds and starts really uh, yeah. becoming more floridly psychotic. Right, and then there was it was a very effective I thought in sort of engendering a kind of perverse delight in <laughs> um, in his violence because it sets up I mean to go to the we live in a society <laughs> I mean it's <laughs> it sets up sort of him not living in a society very well. You get this sort of sense of this uh, um, absence of any kind of solidarity among the inhabitants of this city uh, that he bears the brunt so, of. And then when he just starts shooting people up, you're, <laughs> you're all, all primed to cheer for him. Uh, what, 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 here's what I liked. It's like, so the Batman story, uh, you could kind of view as this... Uh, guy who's living in a society and it's crumbled to such an extent that uh world historic forces sort of force him to act uh outside of the normal 
legal means. He becomes a vigilante. It's sort of a state of exception because Gotham is so bad and so decayed. He has to go outside the law to return Gotham to the law. Uh, and the Joker is kind of a Polaroid, like uh, a negative of that. The Joker doesn't care about anything that's going on. But again, world historic forces cause him to be the center of this uh, violent uprising against the corrupt elites. But instead of, like Batman, trying to return things, he's just uh, pushing for more chaos and his own sort of petty uh, uh, resentments. And this, this sort of goes to something that I found extraordinary only after watching the movie, which is the, the press coverage or, or the reviews sort of frame it as uh, incel panic or whatever you want to set or whatever you want to call that. Um, but I, I read the movie as sort of straightforwardly left wing, uh, yeah. as you say, a negative of the sort of straightforwardly right wing Batman narrative. Right, right, right. If Batman is Carl Schmidt, uh, this is more, uh, I don't know, someone on the left, whoever his equivalent on the left would be. Uh, and I thought the media, so when I went to see it, I hadn't read any spoilers or anything, but you couldn't help but know that the media was in a furor and talking about how dangerous this movie was and how dangerous the incels were. And it just, like, I watched the movie and I thought, they're so out of touch. They're so out of touch. Like, that's not what this is about at all. And what? not only that, they're not only out of touch, but what's dangerous is the media uh, continuing to seek to antagonize people and to call them dangerous when that's not what the movie was doing at all. Like, if there's right. any danger here, it was the, the coverage. Well, and, and I would have thought, you know, and, and maybe this is this is my sort of bias or or whatever. I, I read even Thomas Wayne the, the portrayal of that character is straightforwardly Trumpian. Like right. I would have thought that they would have picked up on this as sort of the the only I can save you and the sort of tough language coupled with the austerity psychosis that was already visiting Gotham. Um, I would have thought that this would have been, you know, the media pointing to the movie and saying, finally, someone gets the uh, the society we live in or don't live in um, and instead focuses on on the uh, Arthur Fleck character uh, in a way that I, I just I don't see any any connection between that and what the movie was was showing. Right, right. Well, it's. I think there is kind of a vague connection insofar as there is. There's a kind of family resemblance between left-wing anarchism and um, right-wing. It's a clown world. <laughs> memes. Yeah, I think so, and that's why I said it's. So there's sort of just rejection of the status quo and, and you know, of the orders that be and this you know sort of delight in violence for its own sake you get that you get that both in left-wing anarchism and in right, right which is why i kind of thought it was a, a uh a negative you know a photographic negative of the normal as i read it sort of right-wing batman story of uh you know he's got to go out outside the law to return law because they, he lives basically right. in, in a state of exception more or less and i do think that the uh I, 
you know, I do think that a you see today the center, the old center liberal consensus crumbling and crumbling and crumbling. And people are increasingly, you know, you read these panicked articles about millennials are either we're all socialists or, you know, maybe we're all right uh, ethno-nationalists. But what seems what seems true about those is that people are abandoning the the old consensus and looking for new ways, either on the right or the left. And that seems accurate to me, especially when you look at the dysfunction in Gotham as the movie portrays it and portrays it really well. I mean, it's it's unusual that not only do they portray a garbage strike and it it seems to be a really accurate portrayal of a garbage strike, (laughs) but also the sort of the dingy, uh, overused, under uh, cared for social services uh, worker office, the the, the massive, metro. right, and, and then the um, the state hospital there, right, right, right. I mean, the, these are all sort of uh, crumbling uh, institutions that, in a sense, sort of reflect maybe what the old idea about you know the, these are the services society provides to everyone. Um, that maybe that that is a, a visual representation of the crumbling consensus that you talk about. Right. So the, the, the part where Thomas Wayne did not seem Trumpian to me was that he had the, the toughness, the calling people losers, uh, the being sort of an authoritarian figure, the, you know, being extremely wealthy. Uh, and also, you know, it's true there's people – protest against Trump all the time, but Trump also holds massive rallies for uh, uh, support, uh, you know, for, for, you know, working white class people, basically. Uh, I'm sorry, working right. class white people, basically, is what I meant to say there. Uh, and... White class. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, Confusing your Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, in the movie, there's none of that. He's not. He's more almost, in, in a sense, he's more like Bloomberg. He's just a billionaire who might be able to buy the election, but he's not really popular with anybody. Uh, uh, whereas Trump is popular. Except the Joker's yeah, except mother. Except the Joker's mother. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, and that's true. Um, though, again, I don't know if that's that's a perspective the perspective of the movie coming through that you know no one could support uh, right I mean Thomas I think Wayne it, just I think it's because the movie is comes from a left wing place. They're like, who could support Thomas Wayne and just as who could support Trump and it's like, well, have you seen his his speeches draw a lot of fans? I don't know right, right. Uh, people on the internet sure seem to like him yeah yeah <laughs> whereas thomas wayne like you know uh uh was just and maybe it's just because they needed him to be more straightforwardly villainy uh, uh thomas wayne was just yeah he was just kind of a bad guy just a jerk right uh so this this joker society meme i've never quite understood it potter do, do you have some insight here well, I mean, it's I, I don't understand it completely either. I mean, I don't know the origins of it or anything, but <laughs> but it seems to be just sarcasm, right? It's we live in a society, and what it really means is we don't live in a society. 
What I'm reminded of, and and uh, this is because uh, probably how old I am, but also uh, because of the opera we chose, is the George Costanza line, which I think it's in the Chinese restaurant episode where someone cuts him off in the line to to use the payphone. Uh, and he says famously, you know, we're living in a society here, supposed to be a civilization. <laughs> There was a brilliant recut of the Joker trailer uh, that used uh, both George and crazy Joe Davola to sort of <laughs> retell the story of... So who's who's crazy Joe Davola? I've seen a little bit of Seinfeld, but I don't so, know who so this person is. So crazy Joe Davola is a writer, and it, he's uh, not a well person, much like our, our man Arthur Fleck. <laughs> Uh, his uh, psychiatrist goes off to Italy, maybe with Elaine, and right. forgets to refill his prescription. So uh, Joe, okay. Joe goes off his meds and runs into Jerry and George at NBC after dropping off a script and uh, decides that uh, Jerry kiboshed his uh, pitch to NBC by by bad mouthing him to the NBC executives and says okay, that he has okay. kiboshed before and will kibosh again. Um, and then uh, Elaine and I can't remember exactly how gets in with him, uh, starts dating him, uh, although he is also stalking her. And yeah, I, I didn't remember that they actually dated because she goes to his apartment and he's got like a complete crazy person wall of pictures of her. Right. And, right. <laughs> and and a, a line that I use to this day is he leaves his front door open and Elaine sort of wanders in and she points out that his front door is open and he says, yeah, I, I like to encourage intruders. Um, which, <laughs> um, and, and, oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. And, and Kramer and he have some sort of disagreement about Kramer, not inviting him to a party. Um, and it culminates with him putting on the Pagliacci makeup and standing outside the opera house um, to, to catch Kramer and, Elaine and Jerry. Who are all um, going to the opera. And um, having convinced himself based on the plot of Pagliacci that Elaine is unfaithful to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it uh, plays a lot with sort of the scary clown, although in, in the show <laughs> Crazy Joe DeVol is plenty scary without the without the clown makeup. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it sort of does an absurdist Excellent. Seinfeldian take on, uh, on the, on the opera. And, it, and, you know, it's all these like little tiny slights that who would get so worked up, but well, all the, everybody on Seinfeld does. So, uh, <laughs> and, and really it, it has only occurred to me in recounting such as I remember of the plot that, you know, we, we should look back and say that crazy Joe DeVola was the proto Joker. Yeah, he really is. It really it it ties quite <laughs> quite nicely to it. But I mean, so does the opera. In fact, if you if you look at the opera, the opera is very bleak and nihilistic. And you know, the last play is the comedy is finished, and uh, uh, it's uh, everyone gets shot. Yeah, at the yeah, end yeah, yeah. If, if the, my vague memories of it are or stabbed or however it is. Something, yeah, lots, lots of bloodshed. Uh, it's the it's uh, the clown who's crying on the inside. <laughs> at, at least when Wagner ended uh, 
Kendrick Dimering, he ended the world as opposed yeah. to just the sort of the, the, the smaller scale tragedy of the, the Italians. So, so the other reason I liked using this music, which I, I forgot to mention, is that uh, we're having, of course, Pat Smith from Southern Indiana call in. And uh, I got to use an Italian opera instead of instead of Wagner for you. That's my I, I just wanted. <laughs> I just wanted on record that I suggested, perhaps inappropriately, the Gary Glitter uh, track, but that was that was as Joe Devoli say kiboshed. Uh, yes, yes, that that was the the track they used in the movie. Yes, right? when he's when he's coming um, down the stairs. The, it, uh, down the yeah, stairs. and also Gary Glitter himself. Uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there was some controversy in the media, which was absurd because the song is used at every sporting event I've ever been to, just about. But there was some controversy in the media as to whether or not Joker was supporting. Uh, uh, pedophile artists because Gary Glitter himself was uh, and, and, shockingly and, 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 <laughs> okay. and as you say well, it was, I mean that was a marketing thing probably I mean it seems to me like a lot of this media outrage about the movie was engineered by the PR people of the movie to I hadn't it. thought of that yeah, that, that that seems possible to me, although I can't imagine a worse thing you could do for an artist than use his music as sort of the, the prelude to a massacre and, and a riot like that. That's not so good. Right, right. Uh, so uh, society, maybe we should talk a little bit about what it means for Thomas, such as Henri Grenier. Uh, and what it means, sort of, uh, you know, why integralists uh, care about society and what it what, what its place is in the sort of integralist uh, political theory. Potter, why don't you get us rolling? Sure. Well, the, the etymologically, it comes societas in Latin comes from socius, which means basically companion, comrade, ally. Comrade, um, uh oh, this is this is already going pinko. <laughs> Did, didn't sign up for this red nonsense. <laughs> yeah, in German we say Gesellschaft, which comes from Geselle, which is literally comrade. Same uh, parallel parallel etymology. Um, although actually, in, in communist East Germany, they said Kamerad to each other, not Geselle. Geselle sounds. <laughs> it's more like what you would say in the bar. To, <laughs> Your, your chums, um, <laughs> buddy, <laughs> buddy. All right, but keep going. Sorry. So yeah, so um, basically, the reality that it's pointing to is a kind of unity between distinct persons, um, and the unity uh, specifically that you see in in disgusted by Grenier and, and by more broadly in the sort of pre, in pre-modern um, political philosophy is a union of activity that comes from a union of, of the end. Right. You have many persons cooperating towards one end. And that the society is the unity of order that results among those persons. That is, it's a kind of relation or... Um, several relations uh, among persons who are ordered together towards some common end. Yeah. And it's not distinct in, in pre-modern political philosophy 
you wouldn't distinguish um, society from, say, uh, what we would now call the state, or uh, what you would call, what, say, Grenier calls civil society, by that he means um, the city, what Aristotle would call the city, uh, that is, a complete political community order to the common good of human life. Right. So but 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 he does distinguish there's uh other sorts of society too like you could have a society of of uh, uh literary societies a type of society that's obviously not a civil society. Yeah, he makes various distinctions between different kinds of societies. Um for example, he distinguishes between a prudential society and an artistic society. A prudential society, there the common end is human life itself, that is human happiness, human activity. Whereas in an artistic society, it would be the production of some product outside of human life. So, uh, and the state is a prudential society. That is, it's for the sake of human life itself, not for the sake of producing goods or so Whatever. before we get into all the distinctions, it does seem to me that this is one of the most uh, kind of fundamentally uh, 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 different. So it's it's one of the most fundamental differences, it seems to me, between what's often called the uh, pre-modern and the modern uh, worldviews. And if, if Elliot were still around, he would be telling me, well, what do you mean by modern? But it seems to me that at about the time of like Hobbes and Rousseau and Locke and everyone else, uh, instead of thinking of society as something natural, which was a union of persons in pursuit of the common good, uh, it becomes the the nat- what becomes natural is man in a solitary state, and it's only artificially through artificial force or through some other means that he becomes social. And and I would say well, well and Grenet recognizes this, but but passes over it uh, tantalizingly briefly, <laughs> and 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 I understand in the, in the manual form, um, you don't always have time to explore the opinions of the erroneous moderns, but it it would would be interesting if he had delved in a little more into that because I think that's that's right, um, although it's object i mean it, it, it's the fact that that's how moderns or at least the moderns we're talking about conceive of society but it, it's so wrong that it, it's hard to imagine how exactly they wind up there um and i think you see this a little bit in grinier where he talks about all the ways society is necessary and it's necessary even for sort of basic preservation of life right right I and mean, hobbes would agree that society is necessary because hobbes you know thinks that any you know Hobbes is so pessimistic about what man's nature is what what is beautiful about Grenier is he shows it's not just necessary it's natural to man right in the sense of yeah flowing from his from his nature because his the the good that in fact makes man happy is a common good so since man is naturally ordered to happiness um it's natural to uh, pursue happiness, and since it's a common good, he naturally pursues it with others, which naturally results in uh, a relation to those others together with whom he is pursuing happiness. 
But I want to point to another another aspect um, that comes out. I I'm not, I'm not sure if you got a chance to look at the, the yes. Pierre Manon uh, piece that I sent you. He uh, Manon talks about how um, another thing that that changes in the view of society in modernity is that society becomes separated from uh, political authority and from the state. You have uh, a distinction between civil society and the state, which you didn't have um, at all uh, before before modernity. And it begins really, I mean, this is why this kind of goes to uh, the whole integralist view of things. Manon argues that how this comes about is in fact through the disintegration of, of spiritual and temporal power. That is, it's only when you secularize the state, um, but then you see that there's still, among the people who are the subjects of the state, there's still this uh, other thing operating, namely the church. That then you get this idea, okay, there's civil society, and that's sort of just the collection of individuals who happen to be um, somehow united by geography or whatever. And then you have the state, um, which is a specific institution that, as you said, uh, on the the typical modern sort of social contract view of the state, is comes to be as kind of artifice that they, uh, they make for themselves. And Manon talks about how then uh, typically the state comes to be seen as a representative entity, but it's a representative entity that is never very good at representing people. So there's kind of a, a, a this distinction between state and society is a distinction within the heart of each citizen as well. Because on the one hand, they see the state as representing them, themselves, but on the other hand, they see it as not representing themselves. And so there's this kind of division uh, looking over at the state. Right. Um, there's a kind of division in their own hearts that gets... Well, and, and, and causes a certain amount of discontent. And, and you may, you know, to, to look at a very concrete example that's still current in American politics or American society. Um, if you'll call, if you'll cast your mind back to 2008, 2009, uh, when the Obamacare thing was uh, being hotly debated, you know, people were saying, keep your hands off my my Medicare or I want the government to stay away from my Medicare. Um, right. What, what do you think <laughs> Medicare is? <laughs> um, Clearly, but, a primordial right that has always existed. <laughs> yeah, you know the the legacy of the Medicare family and giving everybody, a, um, you know, health insurance. <laughs> um, but, but I think this is this is an idea that's very much current in integralist thought, or at least the thought that integralists are are having. If that's not the same thing. You know, because I think uh, Willard Jones in uh, Before Church and State makes at, at great length this, I don't know that the, the argument necessarily, but demonstrates and allows you to draw conclusions of what it looked like and how things worked before the sort of disintegration of spiritual and temporal authority um, and and how that was perceived by people living under the integrated spiritual and temporal authority. Yes. So there you have a view of society where society is definitely not separate. 
either from the church or the state. It's one, um, one unified, uh, one unity of order towards uh, a common goal or towards two common goals that are themselves ordered one to the other, the temporal to the spiritual. And you'll notice how deftly I turn this to, to some of my preoccupations. Um, I think Ernst Kantorowicz in Frederick II makes the point specifically about the, the Lombard League that uh, for Frederick, this was not only um, a sort of a front to his power as emperor, but also a spiritual front because his power as emperor was inextricably bound up with the teaching of the church. Um, and then there's a whole other book, which is, you know, more than we've got time to talk about today, where we, we begin to see all sorts of bifurcations introduced, not only between church and state, but with, within what we would call the state, uh, with you know, the, the book being King's Two Bodies. Right, so. right, right. Yeah, I, I thought the Monet piece was, was really fascinating, really did get to something about uh, you might say the alienation of the the way that modern society sort of forces uh, its citizens into, uh, which again, I mean, you know, I was reading it with a mind to this podcast, but I could just sort of see Arthur Fleck sort of <laughs> in the background of some of what he was talking about. Well, and, you know, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, and I keep coming back to his relationship with the social services agency. I mean, this this is a man who is profoundly alienated from his family, from his peers, but by the same token um, is also deeply sort of reliant on the government, however you want to describe it, for things he knows he needs. Um and, and but that doesn't seem to create any sort of solidarity, and indeed I think the social worker's position is, you know, maybe some affected solidarity. I think the movie implies that she is at the end of the day more concerned with her situation than with his situation. Um, if you sort of follow what I'm saying there, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Manat talks about how. Um, in pre-modern society, you have a great emphasis on social unity and social harmony, but you have a, a very clear distinction between ruler and subject, between command and obedience, as he puts it. And this is necessary to maintaining unity. And Manal doesn't say this, but we could... Uh, from a Thomistic perspective, elaborate on that and say, when many are directed to one end, you need one um, who's directing them to that right. end. And uh, then in, in modernity, you want to abolish the distinction between ruler and ruled. Right. Um, but the way that you do that is through a, a, a kind of fiction of representation in which um, the the representatives are supposedly uh, own, they derive all their legitimacy from the people at large, so that it's the the fiction is that the people are in fact ruling themselves through their representatives rather than being ruled by them. Um, and the way that that works then is you get a, 
a division of powers, either a division of with Montesquieu, he talks about division between legislative and executive. But then in the 19th century, what, what it ends up being is the division between the ruling party and the opposition. Um, each one, you know, claims to the, the, the sort of split in the hearts of the citizens, seeing themselves as being represented, represented but not represented well, that is sort of worked out by then switching, constantly switching back and forth right. between the... The opposition and the, the he draws party. on Montesquieu, who's really uh, and I haven't read Montesquieu directly, but as Manet describes him, uh, Montesquieu is really kind of uh, prophetic about what's going to happen. And Montesquieu, of course, thinks it's a good thing. He thinks that this is going to increase more liberty, but uh, by liberty, he really seems to think it's an atomized, uh, individualized. Uh, you know, self-determination outside of being ruled. It means the possibility of being ruled will be destroyed, more or less. Yeah, and this goes to, to something that Grenier uh, alludes to in his treatment of society, and especially the difference between the modern conception of society and the um, the true conception of society. Um Though he doesn't really explain it very fully, but uh, he he refers to a distinction he makes in another part of his manual between um, objective and subjective right, and right. which is primary, objective right or subjective right. So Grenier brings this up actually in the context of talking about what a complete society is, and how for the ancients and for the and for Saint Thomas. Um, a complete society is one that is ordered to a complete good. Right. That is, it's ordered to full human happiness. Um, whereas for the moderns, a complete society is one that has no superior. It's one that's autonomous in the sense that no other society is over it. So you couldn't have the, the case that you have, say, in, in a medieval society where you would say, I don't know, the, the duchy of Austria is a complete society, but it has the Holy Roman Empire above it. Right for the modern, that would be a, a, a contradiction right. in terms. They don't talk so much about complete society, but about sovereign society. They'd say either you're sovereign, in which case there's no superior, or you're not sovereign, um, in which case you know you're just a province. Um, but Saint Thomas would say no. If you're ordered to complete human good um, and have the authority that comes from the care of that common good of human happiness, then you're a complete society. And and the the thing about rights, subjective and objective rights, is that they're based on a different way of understanding the relation to the good. Um, the idea, if you think that objective right is primary, that is right there, objective right meaning the object that is due to someone in justice, um, that goes back to the primacy of the good. You're saying there is uh, there is a true good of uh, that, that will truly make human beings happy. And um, there's a distribution of external things and other, other kinds of uh, goods and privileges in society that is meant to contribute to that objective good. So there's a judgment about the common good on the part of the legislature, say, um, about you know the distribution of goods. And so then it's just to render uh, to... Um, 
the one to whom that this good is owed that specific good. So it's based on an objective idea of the good. The good is is good, and that's why we desire it, not the other right. way around. Whereas the primacy of subjective right says um, what's primary is the subjective uh, moral power over something. And if I have that moral power, say, for example, I have a right to... Um, well, obviously, I, in my case, it's not true because I'm a monk, but supposing I was a <laughs> secular and I owned a plot of land, right? You'd say, um, I have this subjective right to the plot of land that is a moral power to, to use it for whatever. And that's the primary thing. And the, the purpose of law and ultimately of society itself is um, to ensure that I get uh, those things that I have a subjective right to. So there, the the relation to the good is kind of reversed. What makes something good is really the will of right. the one who wants it. And then you set up society. Society is not something that results from an objective order of human beings to the common good, but it's an arrangement that will help people to get whatever they happen to want. Well, that was I feel like applauding. That was that was brilliant. Uh, <laughs> So, and I think it's, so I had, I had two things, uh, uh, first a, a little comment and then, and then a question I want uh, for, for clarification, I suppose. The first thing is that I think about uh, the point about sovereignty is something that is so ingrained in our imaginations uh, that even for integralists, it's hard to remember that, or at least it's hard for, for me at times to remember that uh, a perfect society really is said with reference to the completeness of its end rather than the, uh, you know, uh, whether or not there's a superior, whether or not the ruler really is sovereign or not. And I think the modern view is really ingrained that, oh, no, it's all about or it, where's the real sovereign? Who's the real sovereign in this sort of Hobbesian uh, or what I take to be ha- one of Hobbes's contributions that gets echoed down in various ways, even by people who disagree with Hobbes, they take that premise and that's sort of one of the uh, 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 most distinctive features of, of modern political thought. So what's the connection between that, or could, could you clarify again what the connection between that is and the uh, also distinctive feature of modern thought that they take subjective right to be primary. So let me, let me uh, bring up a little um, Grenier from a part that we didn't discuss today, but that helps clarify this, um, where, he's, where he distinguishes between uh, objective and subjective right. Um, Let me see if I've, I've got this somewhere. Uh, today's uh, today's episode has been plagued by uh, technical difficulties from the beginning, as usual. So it's no surprise <laughs> that the search function on my PDF program is not working. But <laughs> it's, it, it's entirely <laughs> owing to my presence. <laughs> um. Okay, but I, I'm not going to find the text. But look, I can basically put it this way. Um, if objective right is primary, then rights um, ultimately go back to 
uh, judgment about the common good. That is, law, law is the reason for a right. St. Thomas says law is the ratio juris. It's the reason why something is right. That is why it is the object of justice. Um, so it ultimately, um, rights are not uh, prior to law, though they might be prior to some system of positive laws. Um, that is my right to, say, my right to educate my children, for example, if I had any, uh, <laughs> would be prior to the positive law of some particular uh, complete society, but it wouldn't be prior to um, some objective common good. So right. That, that right is a natural right in the sense that it comes from the natural law, that, it com- that is, it comes from the inclinations towards the good that God has put into our nature. So ultimately, on the, the, the Thomistic idea of right, right is um, not prior to law. Uh, law is what gives you the, the reason for a right. And law is uh, something of reason for the common good. So ultimately, everything comes back to some uh, recognition of what the common good is or how the common good is to be achieved. So people are granted specific rights, either by the natural law or by the positive law of some uh, society, for the sake of achieving the true common good, right? In the modern conception, it's the opposite. What's primary is the rights, and laws are enacted only for the sake of securing those rights. And right here means not the object due to someone injustice. So say the the plot of land that's due to um, this specific person, that would be the right in the objective sense. But here right has its subjective meaning, meaning the moral power that the person who owns the plot of land has over that plot of land. So you take as primary this moral power, um, and then law is, is set up to ensure that people get what is due to them on account of the moral power. That is, it's a subjective understanding of uh, right and law, and ultimately that is going... The reason why you would think that that is primary... Mm-hmm. is because you think that what is primary is not the good, objectively speaking, but rather what is primary is human desire for the good. So whatever someone happens to desire, that's what's good for him. And so how does that... So I guess my question, though, was how does that uh, tie into the other sort of distinctive thing where what's seen as primary is not the... Well, I guess I guess I'm answering my own question. What's seen as primary is not the common good, but is uh, who has final authority. Because, again, it's a subjective thing. I guess I... Yeah. Yeah, so then the question is who gets to right. decide. That's the, that's the only question that's left over. Because there's no objective measure for um, human action. It's all subjective measures. So then you have to decide, well, who's going to... Who's going to be the final authority about what is in accordance with the rights of man and what isn't. Then you have to come up with some sovereign authority that's not questionable. Right, and that becomes the debate for most of the modern, or maybe not most, but that becomes one of the central debates of modern jurisprudence and political theory. It's just arguing over who makes the final call. Yes. 
So this is uh, um, Grenier says, uh, to quote him a little bit, this is uh, on page 283. He says, um, two elements are found in a perfect society, a perfect good as its end and independence in its own order. Moderns conceive independence as the principal and essential end of a perfect society, whereas Aristotle and St. Thomas hold that a perfect good, i.e. a perfect end, is its principal element. Therefore, the former defined a perfect society, a society which is perfectly self-sufficient, that is, which is autonomous. Moderns thus define a perfect society because they conceive subjective right as a right in the strict and proper sense of the term. Aristotle and St. Thomas accordingly to whom a perfect society is a society whose end is a perfect good, hold that it is objective right, which is a right in the strict and proper sense of the term. But but I would agree with with Joel's point that this the sovereignty question I, I'm I almost want to call it the sovereignty trap becomes for whatever reason really hard to to break out of. Yeah. Um, and really hard, even even in discussions among integralists, or even discussions yeah. within ourselves. Um, really hard to to look past. You know, who is the who is the maximum decision maker? The 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 final uh, decider, as George W. Bush might say. Um, <laughs> and, and to look to uh, the question of. of perfect goods as ends or or indeed even imperfect goods as ends um much less the sort of difference that you've you've outlined so well of objective and subjective right yeah and i mean it really is uh one of the to to bring it back to a, a source you described earlier i think you said uh andrew willard jones doesn't so much uh argue as just sort of demonstrate by concretizing and, and giving giving real uh uh sort of objects for the senses and imagination to work on and what he was what was good about uh for me about his book before church and state is that it's so hard to imagine pre-modern life without just importing modern conceptions of what uh politics and society and everything else really means and what he did was just give example after example of how differently they conceived it so that you could start to see what it would look like and so that you could have the experience as it were which is necessary for ethics and politics uh or political judgments to be well formed you could have the experience of that sort of thing and have your imagination uh be a little less uh fettered by uh modernity yeah, and I mean, in it, it will be important, obviously, to to uh, to distinguish different levels of authority, and Absolutely. so on, even in in uh, where you have objective right. But it's uh, but it helps to see that it is in ultimately it's a secondary question. Right, and Grenier actually, I did find I did find this uh, quote okay. from Grenier, which I, I want to read because <laughs> this is my one of my favorite quotes from the whole manual. <laughs> completely nerding out on Neos' classic manuals here. <laughs> this is uh, this is from Article 950 in Grenier on page 180 in the English translation. 
If objective right is understood as right in the strict sense, it follows that subjective right, that is right as a power, is measured by the just thing according to conformity to law. Moreover, since law is an ordinance for the common good, it follows that the whole juridical order, that is the whole order of rights, is directed to the common good. But if subjective right is understood as right in the primary strict and formal meaning of the term, it follows that the juridical order consists in a certain autonomy, independence, and liberty. For subjective right is not measured by the just thing, but the just thing is measured by the inviolable faculty, which is a certain liberty. Therefore, according to moderns, the juridical order is directed to liberty rather than to the common good. This gives rise to errors among moderns who speak of liberty of speech, liberty of worship, economic liberty, economic liberalism, without any consideration of their relation to the common That's good. That's really beautiful. And it ties into, I want to read a section of Manet that, uh, yeah. if I'm pronouncing that right, that... Uh, uh, I say Manon, Manon, but I have yeah, no yeah, idea yeah. Really uh, how to I, understand. I can't ever, I can't ever names. pronounce names correctly. So, uh, <laughs> I assure you, no one from Southern Indiana needs to even even come close to trying. <laughs> we'll call we'll call him uh, Pierre. <laughs> Although they were French, they were French missionaries in Indiana. They, there were uh, Bishop Simon Brute is sort of the uh, the the father of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. There you go. Manon, then, uh, or however you say his name, he says, inherent in the logic of represent- representation is a sort of double game that citizens play with those in power. As soon as one branch of power, it does not matter which, is said to represent the citizen, a desire to in- identify with it will become inseparably mixed with a feeling of alienation from it. It is apparent that this organization of powers, in fact, sets up a kind of generalized powerness. Citizens are powerless to do much to one another, and the powers that be, since they are divided, are powerless to oppress the citizens. This mechanism by which powers produce the powerlessness of power is what Montesquieu calls liberty, and which was the whole point for him. Which t- I thought I thought tied in nicely to what Granier was saying yeah. about the moderns making liberty the sort of idol of uh, 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 their life. Right. I mean, and this goes back um, to to come back to the question in a way that's posed by the we live in a society. <laughs> do we live in a society? You know, is do we live in a, a stable um, plurality of persons who are united? by pursuing one common good as their end, or do we not? Is, in fact, what happens in modernity a kind of um, uh, destruction of society so that, uh, you know, Manal Man also talks about the importance, he quotes Adam Ferguson, I think, but you can see it in a lot of sort of Scotch Enlightenment people, the importance of commerce for the, the sort of, uh, the separation of, of society from politics. Um, to quote a, a passage, this is at the end of page 122 in the Manal. He says, um, Excuse me. Uh, yet in order to function, such a mechanism requires a whole ensemble of hard-to-achieve conditions, including the prior existence of a civil society, that is, of social practices that do not depend too heavily on command and obedience. And again, I think you can argue that the command and obedience thing comes, will, will again flow from uh, 
you know, common action towards the common good, because that's where you need a commander is to unite many in the pursuit of one end. But that's that's in parenthesis. Manal doesn't really bring that that part out. So you need an, a, an area of um, practices that do not depend on command and obedience. Thus, it supposes the prior development of what in the 18th century was called commerce, meaning that web of relations which members of society weave freely which is to say, not out of obedience to some command, and in parenthesis, my insertion, not uh, in order to pursue some common goal, some common good, um, but in order to seek their own interest. So that, that, I mean, it's kind of been a theme of this podcast, uh, something that I kind of call the, the liberalism's wily coyote problem, which is that liberalism depends on pre-liberalism. And then, you know, Wiley Coyote is always walking off the cliff into air. And then at some point he'll look down and realize that he's not standing on anything. And then he'll plummet downwards. Liberalism sort of does okay. a similar game where uh, it, it saws off the limb on which it's sitting. It, it depends on uh, having a society, uh, the existence of a society that was the old form of society that was aimed at a common good. Uh, and then it goes about destroying it as much as it can. But of course, in doing that, ultimately, it's destroying its own uh, fabric. Well, well, and, you know, th- this may not be <clears throat> directly related, but I saw on Twitter this morning, someone was posting uh, quotes mm-hmm. from Marx's 18th Brumaire. And one of the, one of the yeah. quotes they had posted was, well, when the legislature turns into this endless debating party where everything is up for debate, um, they don't like it when the rest of society puts everything up for debate and the debate spreads out to all, all corners of society. And it, it seems to me that, whether I've accurately summarized the quote or not, that, that something similar happens with liberalism where we, we build on this structure um or build on this surface and then we start chiseling it away but we we don't want everyone to realize that we've chiseled away the the surface um right. or at least want to pretend i mean in what i have specifically in mind are the american founders framers who talk about you know republican virtue and all of that stuff but then proceed to put into place a system of government that does um, much less than it could, which is to say next to nothing to preserve that virtue. Um, but we're we're all to continue pretending that, well, you know, all this Republican virtue, the austerity of the, the Romans lives on in us still, and that's how our government works. Yeah. Well, I think that Marx is, Marx is interesting because he gives you kind of further critique um, as well, it seems like liberalism has an alternative understanding and it to an extent even an alternative practice of what society is so for the the great enlightenment thinkers, um, society is not a union of many a union of order among many persons who are ordered to one common good, but rather um, it 's an order that is freely entered into by many persons who are seeking their private interests for the sake of better achieving their private interests. But then what Marx will do is he'll say, looking at sort of bourgeois liberal society, um, in, in inverted commas, um, we in fact see that it's not a society because there are different classes. 
And what's really going on is you have a, a more powerful, more rich class who owns the means of production. And they are, in fact, using um, the various institutions uh, and laws and so on um, to extract wealth from the, uh, the working class, which is the proletariat class, which doesn't own any of the means of production, which has to sell its labor for wages. Right. So there you get an alternative explanation of why we're not living in a society. Right, and it's one that kind of uh, ironically – because, of course, Marx is the great enemy of, of, of the bourgeoisie and the liberals and all that. But it kind of ironically assumes some of their premises, like that commerce is fundamental and that competition is fundamental. Right. Like he, as far as I can tell, and I'm sure all the, the, the Twitter folks will get mad at me and you know think I'm some sort of re- reactionary, which might be true, but it's very hurtful. Uh, <laughs> Why is it hurtful? <laughs> Rejoice in the in the title of the action. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I, I got <laughs> it. Should be a title of honor. I, I got canceled for saying nice things about Franco, so I, I'm in no position to accuse you of being a reactionary. But uh, it seems like, uh, yeah, you know, Marx does. He he makes very trenchant critiques, but then if you look at what his fundamental positive ideas are, they still draw on the premises of liberalism. I mean, right. he he sees the problems with liberalism, uh, but he's uh, is it uh, Charles DeConnick who says that Marx is the apotheosis of capitalism? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He doesn't he doesn't understand the distinction between private good and common good. Yeah, that's I mean ultimately his problem, and it's partly because of the denial. I mean, he's raised in a in the liberal milieu which is based on the denial of there being any real common good. You know, for the liberal, for the sort of Adam Ferguson, Adam Smith, uh, John Locke understanding of society, there is no real common good. There's just a kind of instrumental good of the order of society that helps us achieve our Yeah, goods. and I remember this was, uh, I, I remember my own, when I was first learning about the common good, uh, I was kept trying to come up with examples of a, a common good and I would it, like three out of four times they would just be uh, what I think some people call public goods, which are private goods, yeah. but that many people might have access to, uh, but not strictly speaking common goods. It's very uh, different when you realize what a common good really is when you start to be able to come up with actual examples of it. Well, well and I think, again – um, observing integralist discourse. So the the objective and subjective right distinction is a really hard one and, and one I think that we struggle with even without knowing that we struggle with it in many instances. Likewise, the common good concept is one we struggle with, although I think we may understand, at least when we start out to explore these topics, that we're struggling with it in a way that I don't think we understand that we're struggling with objective and subjective right. Right. I think that, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, there's, I I include myself here. I'm not, not trying to cast aspersions or anything, but the objective and subjective right is a much more hidden problem that you only realize, uh, when you have someone like Potter explaining things to you so wonderfully 
Right. Yeah, well, I got it from I got it from uh, Pedro. <laughs> that he, the, Pedro did that piece on rights for the Josias. I don't know, was it two years ago or whatever? And it was like just this, not just a light bulb. It was like the rising of the sun. <laughs> my mind was like, holy cow, this is <laughs> this is it. Well, and, and you know, so so as, as someone who works in a in a law related field, um, the the. Uh, the imprecision and in, in, in English, as anyone who does any sort of translation will get into, it's almost impossible to have the discussion, especially well in English, because we use right for all sorts of things that right. would have different words in other languages. But the imprecision, even with to the extent that we can have the discussion in English, leads to some really troublesome hang-ups that I think almost everyone has. Um, but particularly except, legally, yeah. yeah, you know, anyone who's had legal uh, Anglo style legal training, it's just it's like a fish to water talking about subjective right. Yeah, it's, it's how we think of it, it, and it's how the law uses it. Right, and I think it has entered into our political discourse. Right. You know, for example, if I say I've got a right, what I mean is effectively I have the the moral authority over this or that decision or this or that item, and not. Right. Right. The, the the objective sense, right? I mean, uh, so someone who really, I think, isn't it Hohenfeld who does the the really brilliant? Uh, we will link to it in the description. Uh, he does a brilliant exegesis of what it means as used by modern Anglo-Saxon uh, sort of legal uh, scholars, uh, but ultimately. There's a huge gap or a huge distance between that and the older, more fundamental notion of objective right being prior, which isn't to say that subjective right can't be used. And it doesn't say it's not useful and it's not, a, a, you know, there is such a thing as subjective right, but it's, and that's what Pedro's piece showed, it's derivative from objective right. Yeah. So I'm going to have to go soon to prepare for mass but um i do want to 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 hear your at least uh opinion if you don't have science to offer <laughs> about uh whether we do live in a society or not i'll, I'll let pat um, go first <laughs> so so no um I, and i think it's an even more fundamental problem than the hang up on objective and subjective right i, I think the problem is we we have stopped as a community agreeing about ends and yeah. this, this leads to all sorts of problems. Not the least of which is um, you can't have a society if you can't pursue an end. And I, I think we may agree ultimately that there's a way to live, but if we start talking about what the end is, I think we get in very quickly into a fact that we just don't agree. Um, and it's... have decided. Oh, yeah, no, no, keep going. Well, and, and we've decided ultimately that we just won't talk about that, and that there will be other things we can do. But, and, and I think you see that, especially in the United States. And I'm not as familiar with the European political scene, so uh, Potter can can tell me whether I'm off base or not. That our most sort of violent. In, in a, well, increasingly in a physical sense, but usually in a verbal sense, confrontations are about 
the when people start getting into what would otherwise be sort of the ends of society um right and i, I think cicero the, the, cicero says uh defines a republic or something as as uh he defines it uh as, as a people <clears throat> who agree on the common good or something like that it's it's somewhere in um and uh instead of living in a place like that we live in an increasingly fragile truce where no one agrees on it but we're all gonna you know lay down our arms at least for now so it's it's living in a cold war rather than living in a peace a true peace uh which is uh the end of course of society yeah i would i would agree the one qualification that i would put is that there is a very strong natural desire to live in a society and so you see a lot of the worst things, in fact, I think, about uh, the contemporary scene derive in a pers- perverse way from this desire to live in a society, this desire to pursue a common good. So the, the whole, the scary um, way in which uh, sort of PC culture tries to impose its uh, view of... Um, the human life and you know the the persecution of hate crime and so on uh which which is increasingly sort of uh ending the truce the liberal truce i think this although it's it's scary and and evil ultimately it does um derive from a, a perversion of this natural inclination to live in society you want everyone to affirm uh as good what you think is the good human life so if you're homosexual or whatever you want everyone to affirm that and to say yes this is a good way of being a human being my final my final thought and maybe we can close with this is this is one of the things i i actually do think seinfeld is a brilliant brilliant show because i really do think it shows how broken down uh our means of being unified has become (laughs) and it shows this sort of like what would it be like to be living among nietzsche's last men well (laughs) well and and i would say that you know the the profoundly disappointing finale of seinfeld comes i think in um comes into a different focus from from the angle we're talking about where it begins with these people sort of monstrously filming a guy being <laughs> mugged or whatever, and then it turns into a parade of all the wreckage they've left behind them, um, as you say, as, as last men. Right, um, and, right, and right. I, you know, but that doesn't make it good TV. I will say right. <laughs> well, the, the f- finale aside, right. I, I really did think the show was brilliant as a sort of deconstruction of the the shallowness of modern social mores. <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you both so much this was uh thank you for having me yeah absolutely it was a wonderful time and i i thought a really productive discussion and uh with that i'll say i do yeah thank you thank you both it was great to talk to you <laughs> Mentre preso dal delirio, non so più quello che dico.
Oh, <laughs> 